It's been uh, suggested by some uh, Christian scholars and counselors that the most widespread, the most prevalent issue that not only Christians, but all people so often battle is anxiety, worry. Uh, The dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, simply defines anxiety as the state of feeling nervous or worried that something bad is going to happen. Uh, Jesus certainly understood man's tendency toward worry, which is why he included a a longer section on the subject in his most well-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, commanding us, saying, Therefore, uh, I tell you, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or wear. Uh, Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough uh, worry of its own. But seek first the kingdom of God. The remedy in Jesus' mind for uh, dispelling and ridding anxiety and worry is going after uh, His kingdom. And while the Scriptures command us not to worry, not to be gripped or overcome, uh, paralyzed by worry, there are things, of course, that do concern us as believers. Have you ever thought about the the worldwide uh, geopolitical scene and, and wondered what its impact on Christianity uh, is going to be. Or you've watched news about particular places in the world and wondered how governments and regimes are treating uh, believers. We heard a little bit about that uh, this morning in Sunday school. How the corrupted kingdoms of man will impact the children of God. One report, which is called Open Doors, World Watch List, just from this past year into 2023, reports that over 360 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. 360 million. Nearly 6,000 Christians were killed for faith-related issues this past year. 9,500 Christian buildings attacked last year. 4,500 Christians detained. What will the world look like in 25 years? What will our culture be like for our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, for the church 50 years from now? As you turn the pages of the calendar, whatever your end times, last days, or eschatological views might be, the book of Daniel, which we have been in, reminds us that the church at times and in places, lives through some very heavy burdens, and suffering and persecution, great trials. And we are in Daniel chapter 7, in which Daniel has been given this vision, a first of other visions, to see the unfolding of world events. This vision consisting of four beasts, the picture, arising up out of the sea. And he's been given this vision to see the unfolding of world history, their effect upon the saints, and yet where our hope truly lies. The victory that the saints have, even in the midst of it. So we pick up at verse 15 in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verse 15. He's been given the the vision, and now uh, he continues. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. There's the anxiety. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. 
These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and then the single horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great boastful things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, my color changed, and I kept the matter in my heart. One of the things I hope that we see clearly moving through Daniel is the point that life in this world is not a blank canvas. As if one can kind of make of themselves and of this world whatever they want, whatever they will. Free of impact or influence, outside hindrance. That really is the view of modern man. This view that suggests man is kind of detached, he's unaffected by the world, he can create himself and determine his, his destiny however he wills. That's not the biblical picture. We're not birthed into a world of, of sort of neutral territory. We are birthed into a world in which there is spiritual conflict. All around. We don't choose to be born. We don't choose the time in history in which we're born or the culture or nation into which we are born. There are things much greater than ourselves giving shape to the world and cultural landscape before we enter this world at all. Instead of a neutral landscape, we are birthed, among other things, onto a battlefield. And we know this as Christians. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we are in a battle. It is primarily a spiritual one. Our battle is against, as he says, the spiritual rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Daniel is feeling this. And he's not only feeling this, 
the spiritual conflict, it's being reinforced by the visions that God is giving to him. We remember in the first verse of this chapter, chapter 7, that this first vision comes in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, the, the final king of Babylon. And it was this king, recall, that had profaned the things of God, Uh, He had brought the kingdom into a a quite benighted, spiritually dark place. So the culture, the outlook, the morale was at a low point. And the vision God gives to Daniel consists of these four beasts arising out of the sea. And and the sea, oftentimes in Scripture, is representative of, of an environment of chaos. Four kings, or kingdoms, each successive one becoming more dreadful, as we saw last week. And it's the fourth beast or king described back in verse 7 as different from all the rest, devouring, stamping under feet, that Daniel is inquiring about. That's what he is zeroing in on. He wants to know more about this fourth beast or king, understandably so. Who is this king? And what is this horn, this eventual horn, all about coming out of the king, out of the beast? Which in verse 21 of our text says, makes war with the saints. Well, wouldn't we inquire perhaps as well that God has given to Daniel a vision? Lord, when will this be? How will this be? What are the signs going to be? Help me understand. And we've probably all noticed in our Bible reading, certainly of biblical prophecy, our Lord does not prepare His people by giving them simple dates on the calendar. I don't know if that would even help. It might even increase the anxiety. We think of the Olivet Discourse, a lengthier discourse that Jesus gives recorded in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, when Jesus pointed out all the temple buildings and He said, not one stone here, what? not one building, stone will be left upon another. What do the disciples want to know? They ask him, when will these things be? And two, what will be the sign? And Jesus' lengthy response about the end of the age and various signs and his coming has been discussed, studied, debated throughout church history. It continues to be. And this may not surprise you, not everybody is on the same page as to what it means, when it will unfold. There's a temptation Uh, for us to seek peace in life and rest and stillness by trying to figure out the what and the how and the when. But our Lord knows it is not the remedy for our fears and our worries. It's to know the who. Who it is that governs and directs history. That's so central to the book of Daniel. Whose purposes supersede and rule over all that unfolds? Who holds the world in His hands? As hard as it can be to live in this fallen world. Well, the focus, the attention is given to that fourth beast and king in verses 19-22. to And the horn that came up out of it. We're told that the four beasts are four kingdoms in verse 17. 
And if they correspond to the statue, if you remember the the large colossal statue back in chapter 2, then the four kingdoms perhaps could be, one, the Babylonians, two, the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and finally, the Romans. If this be the case, then the fourth beast are the Romans, and the horn perhaps is some anti-Christian persecutor of the church arising in the Christian era. Some go this direction. This would fit well with Paul saying about the spirit of Antichrist ruling there in the first century during his lifetime, the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, whose lawless spirit is already at work, Paul says. However, if the horn in chapter 7 is the same horn that we'll learn about next week in chapter 8, in which Daniel has a second vision centering on another horn, then it is not likely the Romans, but rather likely the Greeks. If you turn the page to chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, you learn that the horn is one of the kings of Greece. Coming, this this eventual horn, coming from Alexander the Great's empire. Most believe it to be Antiochus Epiphanes. He ruled from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C., 11-year period of time. A tyrant opposing specifically the people of God, banning circumcision. We see his desire to remove the law of God in verse 25 of our text, if it is him. Uh, ending sacrifice in Jerusalem, uh, and uh, many are familiar with his defiling of the temple of God by sacrificing this unclean animal, a pig, on the altar and placing an object uh, sacred to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. This great profanity. If he is the horn in chapter 7, then the four kingdoms would probably be the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and then the Greeks. What say you? Sometimes we're left with questions. We we want more clarity. What, What is it? Who is it, Lord? When will these things unfold? Uh, Will we be protected as the people of God through it? Fair questions. But more important than our questions is what God has said and what God has revealed. John Lennox, the Christian apologist and mathematician uh, from England, a contemporary, a wonderful Christian uh, man, speaks about his his days as a student at Cambridge uh, University, at Cambridge, in 1962, during the last one to two years of C.S. Lewis's professorship there. And uh, Lennox said on days when the math lectures uh, were getting boring, and he said, I probably shouldn't say that, but uh, when they were getting boring for him, he would make his way over to the nearby English language faculty lecture hall uh, just to listen to C.S. Lewis lecture. And he said the hall, when you went in, would be packed. There would be people sitting in the aisles, waiting for Lewis to enter. And uh, Lewis would enter, it's during the winter time he's referring to, with several layers of clothing. A heavy coat, hat, scarf wrapped around him. And the moment that Lewis would enter and step in, open the door, the lecture began. He began lecturing. And he would begin 
uh, and go on for a full hour, as he made his way to the front, he'd be unwrapping himself, taking off his coat and his hat, full throttle for an hour, lecturing. Toward the end of the class, while still talking, he would then begin putting back on the layers, making his way to the exit, so that by the time he said his last words, he was out the door. Good technique if you don't want to deal with questions, by the way, if you're a teacher. Uh, Sometimes there just isn't going to be space and time uh, for questions and answers. We may want more clarity. We may have questions. But what God has said is sufficient. Our confession reminds us some, some things are more clear in Scripture than others. But perhaps more important than our questions about the details of this vision is the perspective, and this is the next thing to emphasize and see, the perspective that this vision provides for us, for the Christian throughout history. This picture of kingdoms rising and falling are maybe not just about particular empires and national identities, but serves as a type, the typical example of the kind of lesser powers, petty powers, that will surface throughout history and the kind of flow history will have. A flow that involves the battering and the pain of the saints in the midst of it. One author says this, Therefore, as as he reproduces for our eyes and wonderment these strange moving figures to fill the foreground of a vision, He's also telling us to look beyond and to notice that his picture has a rich, in-depth perspective. It shows us far into coming ages so that this little foreground drama of one age can be something of a guide for varied other times if we will only be willing to see and keep this perspective. Biblical perspective reminds us that though our God sovereignly governs history, it does include lesser powers that at times distress distress us, persecute us, buffet us, pain us. With that biblical lens or perspective come many imperatives. I'll, I'll mention two. One is what we said at the outset. Do not worry, as our Lord has said. Worry can enter when we lose sight of the forest for the trees. We lose sight of the end. And, and we don't see the present, in light of it. Then there's reason for worry or despair. You may recall in Pilgrim's Progress that allegory about the the character Christian on his journey to the celestial city. And he, he enters at one point and climbs up Mount Clear. And through this telescope, he looks and he sees a glimpse of the celestial city, that heavenly home and destination. But because he just went through a recent trial, a kind of scare of sorts, his hands were trembling and shaking so that as he looked through the lens, um, he couldn't see as clearly as he wanted. But but he got a glimpse. And and that's how it is with us as we walk through this uh, earthly life journey and faith journey. Our vision of what lies ahead can be hindered. But he who has given us the eyes of faith to see, not only to Uh, behold and taste of His glory that is to come, but eyes to see and behold Jesus Himself. Jesus is the one who dispels our fears and our anxieties. 
He opens the eyes of the Christian to behold his Savior. And it is that life in Jesus Christ by which we have peace and rest. He gives us a word of rest. Do not worry. Second, be watchful, be vigilant. Daniel was much closer to national and governmental power struggles and the evil that can emerge from within than most of us. To be sure, we're called to be vigilant, watchful uh, throughout our Christian life. Uh, Peter tells us this. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour. But the temptation is to be so close to these power struggles that all one ends up wanting is just that. Power. Power. Be watchful. Most importantly, not for evil, but watchful over our own lives in pursuit of godliness. And how important it is for Daniel and for us that as he inquires further in the second half of chapter 7 to know about this this vision of the beasts and evil powers rising, that he had been given already the vision of the Ancient of Days taking his seat and the Son of Man on the clouds ascending to the Ancient of Days. That precedes this vision this further vision of these four beasts. Let's not forget that amidst evil earthly powers is the Son of Man seated in the heavenlies. He reigns not only in heaven or over heaven, but over earth. And and this is the final and likely most important thing to see. It's the repeated phrase throughout this text and this particular vision. Three times we hear about the saints of the Most High. And what are we told about them? Verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Verse 21 and 22, The horn made war with the saints, prevailed for a time until the Ancient of Days came and the saints possessed the kingdom. And then verse 27, The kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. What Daniel needed to be reminded of, and and we, centers on the nature of the relationship between the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, and the saints of the Most High. Back in verse 13 and 14, As the Son of Man comes on the clouds, ascending to the Ancient of Days, taking His seat with absolute rule, what is He given? He's given a kingdom, dominion, glory. This is what Paul emphasizes there in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul says of Jesus Christ that when He was raised from the dead, He was seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. But then in verse 17 and 27, this is crucial. The same kingdom given to the Son of Man is given to who? It is given to the saints of the Most High. The Christian tastes of Christ's dominion 
possesses Christ's everlasting kingdom and is able to know victory over the world, over sin, and death because we are united to the Son of Man. We are bound to Him. The same kingdom given to Jesus Christ has been given to you. And you are united to Him. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. It's a picture of a collective unity, a collective oneness. Paul emphasizes the same. Since you have been raised with Christ in newness of life, set your minds and hearts on things above. Or what about Paul's words in Corinthians? That image of the body. Very interesting. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. We, we would expect, I think, Paul there to say, so it is with the church. As the physical body is one, but has many parts, so it is with the church. But rather, he says, though Christ is one, yet he has many parts and members. You see, you and I are members. We are united to this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we know the richness of this union in Him. He is in us and we are in Him. This is our victory in this world, our life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, how we thank You that indeed the Son of Man is seated at Your right hand with all power and authority. How You have bound us to Yourself in Him. So that, Lord, as we journey through this world, through this faith pilgrimage, experiencing pains and sufferings, scars and various trials, Yet, Lord, we do so with the eyes of faith, beholding Your goodness, Your presence, the working of Your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that You would give us perspective. Give us eyes to be able to see wisely, discerningly. But, Lord, give us, give us joy. Grow our desire to live after You, after Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Lord, how we praise You for engrafting us into, um, into the vine, to be in relationship with Him, with You. Lord, may we know more of Your, uh, your work um, in and through us as Your people. Um, I pray that You would uh, dispel uh, anxieties and fears that we might have. We might grow uh, more assured and more confident uh, of Your wondrous ways Lord, though mysterious at times to us, yet you have given us, you have given us trust, faith, confidence in you. We pray, Lord, that you continue to abide with us as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.